But let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in the end of chapter 2 today. And just by way of review, we looked at the start of Acts, Acts chapter 1, just a few weeks ago. This was first century truths for 21st century trials. Isn't it amazing how relevant the pages of Scripture are for today? The book of Acts was written to Theophilus in the early church in the middle of a truly terrible crisis. And even in just the first several verses of this chapter, we found no less than eight uplifting and guiding truths for us today in our crisis. Truths like Jesus is alive. We can bank on God's promises. God is with us. We need to choose our questions carefully. God doesn't want us to know the exact timing of all future events, but He does want us to know that He's in complete control. We saw that His grace is guaranteed, and we've got a mission. All of that packed into just a few verses written 2,000 years ago. Then we came to chapter 2 the next Sunday and made a supersonic flyby of the chapter. This was a first century sermon for 21st century people. We saw that the Holy Spirit dropped in like a tornado and it lit a, He lit a spiritual fire that would never be quenched. And when everyone around came running to see what just happened in that part of Jerusalem, not only did they find the Holy Spirit doing miracles in the believers, they heard Peter give one of the most incredible off-the-cuff sermons ever recorded. This was one of the sermons that truly rocked the world. Aren't you and I glad that Peter knew the Scriptures well enough to speak them into his present circumstance? And what was the response from the crowd that we saw? Four things. Some were amazed. Some were perplexed. Some mocked. And what was the fourth one? Some believed. About 3,000 of them actually. We are reminded that the mission and the need and the power is no less for us today. And the responses are still the same. But it's the last one that we pray for. Lord, help more people to believe and find the hope and the healing and the joy and the freedom that only comes from God who made them. So that's what we looked at those last two Sundays in March. And, and today we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You have no idea how much I've been looking forward to getting to this New Covenant, New Testament, Mount Everest of a verse. What's so amazing is again, how relevant these words are for the troubled times that we're in today. Verse 42 says this about the believers in Jerusalem. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I think we all recognize that these past four or five weeks have indeed been unprecedented in our lifetime. Even on the global level, we have seen nothing like it. It's definitely not the hardest thing the world has ever gone through, but it has its own unique pains and losses and uncertainties. Many have died. We still see the number going up. Many have lost their jobs. We see that number escalating. There are people, many of them, who can't pay all their bills. 
while others are doing just fine. Some are even experiencing an increase in their incomes because they have suddenly found themselves in a very high-demand job. There is such an odd spectrum at play in society right now. And when you and I read or, or watch the news, we see very clearly that there are a million and one questions out there that everyone is still trying to answer. What's going to happen to the stock market? What will the new normal look like? When will a vaccine or a therapy or any medication come out that gives us the freedom to socially reconnect? And the longer we sit in our homes, the more intense this question becomes. What are we supposed to do next? For the believer, Scripture gives many answers. And here's one of the best that we find in our verse for today. Continue. Continue in the faith. As I've reflected and prayed over Acts 2.42 these past few weeks, and all these chapters right around it as a whole, God has ministered such a spirit of peace and confidence and direction through His unchanging and all-powerful Word. The Word of God has the power to do that in us and for us. We have to remind ourselves that the Word of God isn't just what He says. It is who He is. Think about that. That is not true of any of us. Because we have the potential to misspeak, to misrepresent ourselves, and over time we do change. But God is immutable. He is perfect and He makes no mistakes. And on this point, He tells no lies. It's impossible because of His nature. And so when God speaks, it is who He is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. That is a magnificent truth, and it only applies to God. It only applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three in one who are most accurately and consistently revealed in the Bible. God never changes. That's why the word that changed the world 2,000 years ago is still changing people today. The word that saved 2,000 years ago still saves. And in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of terribly difficult circumstances, we see, particularly back in Acts 2 in their crisis, we see that the church was found continuing in the faith in spite of circumstance. And we know and we see in the chapters that God blessed them in astounding ways for it. It's easy to look at that day of Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the massive church growth, 3,000 souls, all in one day. And it's easy to think, yeah, but that was way back then. That was a very special situation. And it's easy for us to expect far less of God today. It's true that there was something very special and unique going on at that time. But should we expect so much less of God today? Is it right to picture God sitting in heaven not really wanting to do miracles today? Not wanting to save as many people today? 
the more I reflect on these passages, the more the question burns in my heart, why not today? Is it okay for us to beg God for 10 people to be saved and changed on one Sunday? Or 100 people in a week? Or 1,000? Is it right of us to expect far less of God today? Last week, Easter Sunday, Pastor Mark took us down the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. What a conversation that must have been between those two fellows and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Those two fellows who didn't even realize it was Jesus. Once those two men realized who they were talking to, the verse says that Jesus disappeared from their sight. And what was the first thing out of their mouth in the verse? It says that they said, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road? While He was explaining the Scriptures to us? That's my prayer for myself and for my church family today. Lord, light a fire under this pulpit and under their sofa. We want God to give us that same burning desire to see Him do more for His kingdom and His glory. And we want Him to give us an intense willingness to devote ourselves continually to whatever we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. So that when God decides to go to work, we are ready to go with Him. Let's pray and then we'll dive into some of that whatever we're supposed to be doing in verse 42. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for the record that You have given that it might instruct us, that it might correct, reprove, guide us in all that we are supposed to do as followers of Christ. That we might be equipped for every good work that You are calling us to right now and in the weeks ahead. Lord, we humble ourselves before Your Word and acknowledge we need Your wisdom. We need Your motivation. We need Your strength to do what we know is right. And we pray now that You would open our eyes to the truths of Your Word. Just like You did for those two men on the road to Emmaus. Lord, You open their eyes. Open ours, we pray. And by Your grace, we purpose, even before we get into the study, we purpose to honor Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for what You are about to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we can't just parachute into verse 42, so let's get a little running start from verse 37. Acts 2, verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, and what is the this? That's the, the sermon that Peter just gave. We studied that the last Sunday in March. If you weren't with us and want to watch it, you can find it on our live stream. The incredible arrival of the Holy Spirit and Peter's sermon that followed. But the verse here continues. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I didn't get to comment on this point on salvation and baptism before. So let me just briefly touch on it because it's too important to pass on this miracle of salvation. So at first glance, we see that this verse can give the impression that baptism is required for salvation. This is one of the few verses that seems to contradict so much of the rest of the Bible. Ephesians 2, we know though, says that there are no works we can do. There are no good deeds. There are no traditions by which we can be saved. What does Ephesians 2, 8 say? It is only by grace through faith. It's a gift, not a wage. When it is accomplished by grace, God gets the credit. He gets the glory. No man is able to boast. So what do we do when we come across rare verses like this and a few others that mention baptism and salvation in the same breath? First, remember the very important interpretation and study principle that goes like this. If you have 99 verses that say one thing, and then there's a verse or two that appears at first glance to say something else, Run with the 99. I don't remember which theology book I got that from. Maybe it was Common Sense 101. But it is so true. If you're traveling and you see 20 road signs and your GPS on your phone and your car and your paper map, and they all say to turn right to get where you want to go, but then you see a, one sign that appears to say that you should turn to the left, which way are you going to turn? Of course, any rational person is going to turn right because one doesn't outweigh the 20. Almost always the one will be clarified or corrected. In the case of Scripture, nothing gets corrected. It just gets clarified. And even if there are a verse or two here and there that never get clarified for you and me in this lifetime, that's okay. We keep studying and we run with the 99. So for the sake of time, and since this isn't the focus of our study today, I just want to give you a resource so you can do a little of your own investigative research. Write this down if you like. This are, there's an article online that gives one of the most common sense, theologically accurate, contextual, original Greek honoring explanations I have seen. Go to the website, gotquestions.org. You hear Mark and I mention that from time to time. To time. Go to the website, gotquestions.org, and do a search for Acts 2 Baptism. Acts 2 Baptism. Right there in the list of uh, options and articles, the, the first one you'll see is this article that I'm referring to here today. The writer very carefully and clearly explains that this whole verse hinges on the word for. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And the writer explains very well that the Greek word used for for is the same one that is often translated because of. Be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the parallel example in the article that, that really turns the light bulb on. It did for me. They give this phrase, take a couple aspirin for your headache. Of course, we all know what that means. And we know it doesn't mean take an aspirin so you can have a headache. You take them because you've already got one. 
So there's a modern day example, crystal clear example, of how we still use the word for to sometimes mean because of or as a result of. So dive into that article and see what you think. Meanwhile, continuing in verse 39 here, it says, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord all God, our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And here's our verse for today, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's read the rest of the chapter for context. We'll study that next week. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who doesn't want to be a part of a church like that? More on that next week. But for today, what happens when people receive the Word, get saved, get baptized, and become part of the family of God? What is the natural spiritual response when the Holy Spirit comes into their picture and they are genuinely transformed? Again, verse 42 says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's break that down a little. Every word here is just packed with instruction and guidance for us today. So let's start with the big one. The word devoted. They were devoted to doctrine, fellowship, communion, and prayer. Thayer's Bible Dictionary gives this broad definition of this word in the Greek, including several ways that it can be used. But it's, it's the collection, I'm reading all of them, because it's the collection of uses that gives a really good understanding of the general direction of the term. Devoted means, and here's part of the definition, to adhere to one, to be his adherent, to be devoted or constant to one, to be steadfastly attentive unto, to give unremitting care to a thing, to continue all the time in a place, to persevere and not to faint, to show oneself courageous for, to be in constant readiness for one, to wait on one constantly. Strong's Dictionary says, to be constantly diligent, to adhere closely to. So if we narrow the massive intensity of all that down into one word, we get devoted. Or as some of your Bibles say, steadfast. What we learn is this word gives measurement. Sure, we all believe in good doctrine and fellowship and communion and prayer. But are we defined 
as being devoted? Do we measure up to that word? That takes the verse to a whole new level. In competition, we'd say that's the first round that eliminated 75% of the contestants or whatever the number might be. Devoted. I already happen to know that quite a few of you have enjoyed a meal at a certain nice cafe on the Gig Harbor waterfront. Which one am I, am I thinking of right now? The devoted kiss. A man who is devoted to his wife doesn't just live with her. If I only date my wife once every six months, that's not devotion. If I don't care to hear about her day, even though we live in the same house, that's not devotion. If I'm more concerned about my needs and my interests and my preferences than hers, that's not devotion. Well, actually it is. It's devotion to myself is what it is. But if I'm devoted to her, then there is a singularity of continued and significant focus and effort directed toward her and her alone. That's what it means to be a devoted husband. Devotion has an essence of being lifelong. It has an essence of high priority. And in this verse, we see that the word was applied to these four very specific categories. Surely Luke didn't just rattle these off because they were the first cool spiritual things to come to his mind. No, he intentionally says that these people who were on fire for God, they were first devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine, the apostles' teaching. Talking about Bible doctrine. If the first round in the cut is going to hit the American church hard, it's this one. There's been an alarming de-elevation and depreciation for doctrine in recent years. We've seen almost a bitter taste for it in the mouth of many who call themselves Christians, including a number of Christian leaders, as though doctrine hurts churches or hinders good church growth. You know what I'm talking about. It's a travesty in the modern church. On the contrary, when the Holy Spirit arrived in great force, when a great awakening struck the newborn church, the first thing we learn about them here is that they devoted themselves to doctrine, to the apostles' teaching. Doctrine was a very high priority for them. It was core to their spiritual life and success. I thank God, as I know many of you do as well, for Pastor Mark's unwavering and humble but fierce commitment to this truth. Forty years into his ministry now, he is still preaching the same priorities, chief of which is the importance of Bible truth, of scriptural doctrine. Again, this is common sense, but it's not so common. What you believe will dictate how you live. What you believe will even direct how you feel. As mentioned earlier, devoted is a measuring word. And here's the application for us right now. Yes, I don't doubt that we all recognize that doctrine is important. Bible study is important. It's part of the Christian life. That's why we're sitting right here in front of our screens today, right? It's why we read our Bible and other good Christian literature. But the verse doesn't ask the question, do you think Bible study and doctrine is important? 
It asks this question, are you devoted to it? If someone handed you and me a pencil and paper and and said, answer the question, are you devoted to the study of God's Word? What would we write? And how long would it take us to answer the question? What would our answer be? Yes? Maybe? I think so? Sometimes? Not really? Of course, none of us is perfect, but that's not what the Scripture says. That's not the application. It simply begs the question, are we devoted to the Word? My prayer is that every person in our church family will say, yes, by the grace of God I am, and I want to be even more. Because the word devoted is a measuring word, it's also a defining word. Can those who know you and me well say, he is sure devoted to the Word. She is really devoted to the Scriptures. She loves talking about it. She's always got some insight or some fresh encouragement that she got from the Word that week. He's there every time the church doors are open. Or in this case, the Zoom meeting is going on or the live stream. Of course, none of us can be there every time the church doors are open. But that's not the question. The question is simply put, are we devoted? Are we committed to doing our very best? In the first few chapters, we're seeing that God is doing some very awesome things in and through the believers in Jerusalem. But if we remove this first point in verse 42, what happens? If you pull the plug of doctrine, what happens? The entire book of Acts crumbles. It implodes. Surely we see that revival would be replaced with judgment. The Spirit would be nowhere to be found. Without the Word of God, without the truth of God, everything fails in Christianity. Surely this point is the linchpin of this whole book. These believers understood this. Doctrine was the highest priority. Truth, adherence to the truth, devotion to the truth, worship of the true one was their highest priority. Should we expect anything less at Discovery Baptist in 2020? My heart smiles big and my imagination starts to go wild when I ask myself, what would happen if all God's people at Discovery would purpose by His grace to be more devoted to the Word of God? Let's not leave it to our imagination. Let's do it and see, just see what God will do in the weeks ahead. Let me take you backwards in this verse to notice our second key word though. And that is the word continually. The first was devoted, but we see the word continually here. There's a compound idea. This is a modifying word. The believers were not just devoted. It says specifically that they were devoted continually, nonstop. That doesn't mean they were participating in these four things at every minute of the day. That's impossible. It means that their life and their lifestyle was committed to it. There was an unceasing devotion a steadfast attention, persevering courage, unremitting care. 
It'll be easy for us to feel devoted to, to the Word on Sunday in the middle of the sermon. But the early church was noted for their devotion on Thursday and Friday as well. Where will you and I be in our devotion to the Word of God in three months, in three years, in three decades? We often quote 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and for good reason. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, we could say regardless of the crisis, regardless of circumstance, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. These are such incredible key words. We're not just to do the work of the Lord. We are to abound in it, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul understood the importance of faithfulness and continuity when he penned these words. Luke understood it when he recorded this in Acts chapter 2. Devoted is a measuring word and continually gives more accurate measurement. Third key word we see in the verse, continually devoted themselves. The verse doesn't just say they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says they devoted themselves to it. Now this isn't a major point. I don't think it's, it's, it's a major emphasis of the translation either. But it does highlight very briefly the personal nature of what we're talking about today. This isn't just a matter of another school subject or religious subject. This is a belief system. It wasn't just about Sunday. It's about the whole week. It wasn't just about religion. It's about faith and trust. It's not just about the mind. It's about the heart. Again, this wasn't just intellectual. It was personal. Highly personal. This reminds me of the personal emphasis that we came across recently in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul said, I do not seek what is yours, but you. When he was talking about the offering and the collection taken for the saints in Jerusalem, many of them, Many from far abroad, there for Pentecost, etc. It says that, that they, they were there for the feast. So, so when Paul collected this offering from many churches in the surrounding areas, he said, it wasn't your offering I wanted. I wanted you. That is such a marvelous statement. It's you I want for Christ. And similarly here in Acts 2, we aren't just devoted to Bible doctrine and truth. We devote ourselves. It's our very lives. And so with those three key words in place, continually devoted themselves, we better understand the importance of doctrine. And secondly in the list, fellowship. This is the Greek word koinonia. Many of you know that. When we think of fellowship, we often think of get-togethers or parties or potlucks, but it is so much more. Thayer defines it as community. Let that sink in. The early church was continually devoted to community. In a sense, these are my people. You remember the time when Jesus was 
ask a question about this. And what did he, what did he say? He turned to his disciples and, he follow, and followers and said, these are my family. Think about it. It's very possible to go to church but not be in community with them. When we think of community, we often in English think of neighborhoods. The believer points to fellow believers and says, these are my neighbors, even though we're miles apart. These are the people who are just a phone call away. The word koinonia refers to more than just community, though. Community, though, as in, these are the people I'm close to. Thayer's Bible Dictionary also states that it refers to joint participation. Think about that. These are the people I'm engaged with. These are the people I do life with. We all know very well that it's possible to live 10 feet away from a neighbor's house and yet have absolutely nothing to do with them. So close, but so far. Likewise, it is possible to sit in the same church building and yet have so little to do with one's church family. But not in Acts 2. Here's another aspect of koinonia given by Thayer. This puts even more teeth to the true fellowship. It further defines it this way. A gift jointly contributed. A collection a contribution as exhibiting an embodiment and proof of fellowship. What a definition. Contribution that proves fellowship and community. That's what koinonia refers to in part. A contribution that proves fellowship. That's the difference between a giver and a taker. Acts 2 is saying that these people were continually devoted to doing their part. They were all team members. Appreciated so much Paul referencing the verse earlier. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4. Everyone contributing toward one common goal. That's part of fellowship. What happens when one player on the Seahawks doesn't contribute? Well, sadly, we know all too well. No, I'm just kidding. Not here to dig the Hawks. I root for the home team. But you get the point. No matter what the sport, the best teams are those where every team player is contributing at full capacity. Everyone is doing their part. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks to this very well-known chapter on the body of Christ. We are many members, but one body with Christ as the head. Acts 2 is again saying that these people are all doing their part. Fellowship doesn't just mean the people I get together with and enjoy being around. It speaks far deeper to community to participation, to sacrificial care for one another. The Apostle John understood this when he wrote in the introduction of 1 John, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
That word carries so much weight. Oh, the depth and the width of fellowship with one another and with our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are allowed to have by the grace of God. We're going to look more deeply at fellowship next Sunday when we get to the rest of the verses in this chapter. So let's look at the third item in our list for today. What's the third item? Breaking of bread. We have every reason to believe this is referring to communion. The Lord's table. Now think about what the verse is saying. These believers, through whom which God was working powerfully, were continually devoted to remembering Christ and His sacrifice and His perfect love through the communion. Through the Lord's table. I'm so grateful that we had Good Friday a little over a week ago. The Lord's table puts everything in life in perspective, including global pandemics. Christ commanded us to remember His sacrificial and victorious, His victorious love for us for very good reason. I desperately needed some focused time on the cross last week. But the truth is, I need it continually. It is of no small significance that the Lord's table is included in this short list in verse 42. And it's not the act itself. It's not the tradition. It's the heart in it that matters. And we learn here that when the Holy Spirit arrived with power and when genuine salvation struck, it inspired a continual devotion of oneself to the Lord's table. Let that sink in. Do we have a high view of communion? Our salt group met on Thursday via Zoom. We had such an awesome time together. In talking about Pastor Mark's message about the two men on the road to Emmaus, we were reminded that it was when Christ broke the bread and gave thanks that their eyes were opened. Do you think Scripture snuck that fact in just to make the record a little more interesting? Or is there a huge lesson for believers of all time to learn that when we remember Christ, our spiritual eyes are opened. God does a spiritual miracle in us when we turn our eyes to the cross. The empty cross, hallelujah. The early church was continually devoted to this truth. What's the last item in the list? Prayer. Pray without ceasing, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Talk with God. I hope that we are often overwhelmed. I hope our minds are often boggled at the thought that we get to talk with God. I fear that many people neglect talking with their Lord and Savior. They neglect talking with the Father because deep down inside, they really don't think or understand that He's actually there. Talking to God is little different than talking to the wall. And thus, it's very hard to pray. 
is very awkward for them. And rightly so, understandably so. If we struggle in our prayer life, I dare say it's not because we aren't trying hard enough. It isn't because we don't need to hone our craft a little better and figure out the right wording. Remember, the Holy Spirit takes care of that part. If we are struggling, perhaps it's because God is not real enough to us. When the Holy Spirit showed up in the lives of these new believers, talking with God was most natural. And they didn't just do it. What does the verse say? They kept doing it at the devoted level. Again, here's the question. Here's the application. The question is not, do we pray? The question is, are we continually devoted to prayer and communion and true fellowship and the apostles' teaching? Bible doctrine. If we aren't devoted continually, is it any wonder that we don't see God doing greater things in us and through us? And if we are, we have every reason to believe He will. And He is. We're going to look at more of that next Sunday. He is doing miracles. He is transforming lives. He continues to sanctify many people. Well, today we have only scratched the surface of these four key ingredients in the believer's life. Please continue this discussion and application in your salt groups, in your own devotions. But remember, big picture, for God's people, the question isn't, are we Christians? The question is, are we continually devoted followers of Christ? The mission is clear, isn't it? So what do we do next in this pandemic? Well, for one, we continue in the faith. We continue with all our heart more and more each day. Then God will do what only God can do and is already doing. He is adding to His church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand back and we marvel at even what little we can see of the kingdom of God happening around us. People's lives are being changed for eternity. Our lives have been changed for eternity. You are still doing a good work in us. You are still the God who gives hope and forgiveness and healing and joy and freedom. That's why we come to You. And we ask today, Lord, give us the grace to continually devote ourselves to following Your Son, Jesus Christ especially in the area of Bible study and true fellowship and a high view of the Lord's table and our participation in it.
and in prayer. Lord, where each of us might be lacking in any one or more of these areas, help us to recognize that these are the oxygen to the Christian life. Without them, we will fatigue. We will grow sick and weak. We will wander. But Lord, with these things, You are still doing a radical miracle in those who know and love You. Lord, help us to experience that miracle a little more today, this week, if not a lot more. Lord, help us to raise our expectations of the God of the universe. Help us to devote ourselves to You with great anticipation that You will do what only You can do to help us to rise above our circumstances with a peace that passes understanding with a truth that defies human logic, and with a hope that is immovable, with a labor in the Lord that is steadfast and immovable, knowing that as we follow You, as we serve You, as we do it all in the heart of worship, none of it will be in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.